0: Those are beautiful words, aren't they? Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to ride the love of God above would drain the ocean dry? Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. That is how marvelous our God's love is. Is that beautiful? Is that marvelous? Would you turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. In the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have this book of history, history of the early church, the book of Acts we will be in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, and we'll be looking through verse 47, the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 2, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, daily such as should be saved. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let us pause and ask the Lord's blessing as we look into these 11 verses this morning. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that it is beyond our comprehension. The songs that we sang try to picture how great your love is, and yet we cannot fully picture it. It is beyond our understanding. It is beyond our imagination. But we thank you for your love. We thank you for this record here in the book of Acts, of the first church as people responded to the message of your love, the message of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, dying on the cross for them. And and they, responding in faith and repentance, they turned to you and to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would guide us into truth. May your Holy Spirit encourage us, convict us, encourage us. Whatever it is that we might need this morning, we ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Socialism is an idea, it's a system of government that's been growing in popularity, especially among young people in our society. One of the basic goals of socialism is to eradicate, to eliminate social classes, right? Especially the distinction between rich and poor. And that can actually be a good goal, Um, or part of it can be good. It's the goal of everyone sharing so that there's no one who has needs in the community, right? That, that sounds, at least on paper, that sounds good. But there's a problem with socialism, and this is the biggest problem with socialism, is that men and women are sinners. If men and women were perfect, socialism might work. But men and women are sinners, and men and women are selfish we naturally want what benefits us. And if I am just as benefited by not working as I am by working, why would I work? Right? In a sinful world, socialism simply doesn't work. But the message this morning is not about socialism. But the question is, how can we be that kind of a person that doesn't need the government telling us to share with someone else. That doesn't need the government telling us to be kind to someone else. That doesn't need the government telling us to think of other people. To not be self-centered, but to be others-centered. To be focused on the needs of others. Maybe we could be like you all know the name Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Maybe we could be like Scrooge. We can turn over a new leaf on our life because being generous makes me happier, right? Well, it might. But I'm, I'm going to ruin a Christmas carol for all of you right now. Even, even Scrooge, I would say, did not have a change of heart. He changed outwardly but he didn't change inwardly. Why? Because the reason he changed was because of himself. He wanted to be happier, and he wanted other people to think well of him. He had this view of the future where people didn't like him, and he didn't like that people didn't like him. So he decided to change. At the end of the day, that's still selfish. That's still self-centered. Because he's not doing it for anything outside of himself. He's doing it because he's self-centered. So again, the question, how do we have that kind of a heart change where we actually desire to please someone else? You know, I think this is why Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, and, and other verses give this idea that even the good things that we do aren't really good. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even when we appear outwardly to be generous, to be focused on others, very often, I'm not going to say always, but very often, we are doing it so that we become happier, so that we are more more well-liked by other people. So what we need is something more than just turning over a new leaf. We need a change of heart. We need this radical transformation. And we're not alone in that. The people to whom the book of Acts is written needed that same change of heart. Acts was written by a man named Luke. Same man who wrote the gospel of Luke. And Luke provides us with a continuous story, beginning at the outset of Luke chapter 1. He tells us about the birth of John the Baptist, who was the predecessor, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He tells us about the life and the ministry and death of Jesus, his ascension, and then he picks it up in the book of Acts, and he continues this is that same message of Jesus, which was proclaimed beginning with John. is still being proclaimed, and now it is being b- proclaimed by Jesus' followers throughout the rest of the known world. And Acts, the book of Acts, ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome. He is in house arrest, awaiting trial. But Paul, Luke specifically says that Paul was Accepting into his house anyone, and no one was forbidding him to share this message with the people in Rome. So this is the message of the book of Acts. That message of Jesus is the same message that these followers of Jesus are proclaiming in the book of Acts, and it's a message of heart change, of inner transformation, we as people, whether we live in the Roman world or we live in Hollister, California, we do not have to remain enslaved to these natural, normal tendencies to want to please ourselves. We can instead be set free to new desires, not just to please other people, though that is a good thing, but we can be set free to a new desire to please the one who has set us free, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in serving him, we do serve other people as well. There's an old um, old saying, how, "How do you get joy?" It's an acrostic. If you want joy in your life, you start by serving Jesus, others, and then yourself. J-O-Y. Of course, as we're saying, the focus actually shouldn't be on how do I get joy. That's a result. That shouldn't be my goal. My goal should be pleasing Jesus. And then the joy is is the blessing. It's the frosting on the cake that we get in serving him. So this is a message of heart transformation. And this is very evident here in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter has just preached this powerful sermon. It is the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, after Jesus had died on that cross. 50 days later, we see these Apostles speaking with power We see the Holy Spirit enabling them, giving them this miraculous power to speak in foreign languages that they had never learned. And the people in Jerusalem are wondering, what is going on? Some of them respond with this, those men must be drunk. That's a very logical conclusion when you hear people speaking legibly in other languages. They must be drunk. Uh, Peter responds, No, we are not drunk. This is the Holy Spirit who is giving us this power. And why has he given us this power? It is because Jesus, who you crucified. Can you imagine preaching to a group of people who 50 days earlier had been saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And Peter says, that Jesus, whom you crucified, he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And because he has ascended, he has sent his Holy Spirit to empower us to preach his message. And he goes on, he speaks of how King David, in Psalm 16, had prophesied of this Holy One who Peter identifies as Jesus, this holy one whose body would not become corrupted in the grave. And this is Jesus. He is risen from the dead. And Peter also references, again, King David in Psalm 110, where David saw the Lord sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. Now, what does that mean? You have the Lord at the right hand of the Lord. Well, Peter is making the argument that David saw Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. And he goes on to say that this Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ is a Greek, the form of the Greek word Christos, which is a form of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both Christ and Messiah mean the anointed one. This one whom the Jews had been looking for, Peter says, This is him. This is the Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. So we come to our text in Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 37. And in these 11 verses, Luke records by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he records the start of this first church in Jerusalem as 3,000 Jews heed Peter's call to repent and to be baptized and to join themselves with the apostles. And they become partners together for their common good. They're no longer self-centered. They're no longer seeking their own benefit, but they are living for, for Jesus, and that causes them to live for others. This is that same crowd, as I said, that 50 days earlier had been crying, crucify him, crucify him, about the Lord Jesus. And now they are saying, we're so willing to follow this man, this God-man, Jesus that we're willing to sell what we own to help others who follow him. We're willing to get together, as we're going to see later as we work through the text, we're willing to get together every day for the sake of this man. That is a transformation. That is a change of heart. It's from this crowd that the Holy Spirit forms the very first church. The very first assembly of followers of Jesus. Not even known at this point as Christians. Just followers of Jesus. What a change. What transformed lives. And I want for us to come to this conclusion from this portion of Scripture this morning. The message of Jesus has the power to change you completely. The message of Jesus has the power to change you completely. So would you see with me this morning three ways that the message of Jesus has the power to change us? What are those three ways? first way that we see that the message of Jesus is able to change us is the message of Jesus is able to cause us to turn to him. The message of Jesus is able to cause us to turn to him. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Apostle Paul states that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. It is the message of God's word, the message of Jesus, that is able to cause people, men and women, children, to turn to him. So, if I go up to someone and I ask them, do you have a relationship with God? Have you trusted in Jesus? And they start telling me about some dream that they had or some sickness that they had, I am going to question what they tell me after that. Because if it's not based on the message of God's word, the message of the gospel, it is not the message that is able to cause people to turn to Jesus. It is the message of Jesus that has the power to convince you, to convince me, that what we need only the God of the Bible offers. Verse 37, we read that Peter's audience were pricked in their hearts now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This word pricked means exactly what it sounds like it means to pierce. They were pierced in their hearts, they were cut to the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 tells us that the Word of God has this power, that it is alive and it is active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the power that God's Word has. God's Word has the power to convince these Jews, understanding that they themselves were guilty of crucifying their own Messiah, were cut to the heart. They asked Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter's response begins in verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In response to the Jews' question, Peter gives two commands. Repent and be baptized. The word repent simply means to turn or to change one's mind. These Jewish people had rejected their Messiah. They needed to change their mind about who Jesus is. They needed to instead Embrace him as the only one who could deliver them. These people thought that they were right with God. Why? Simply because they were Israelites. They were part of God's chosen people. But no, they needed to change their mind about that. They needed to see that they were helpless, they were wicked. If we look back at verse 23, Peter says, we're picking it up in the the middle of Peter's sermon, him, Jesus Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. These Jewish people needed to understand. They needed to change their mind. We are not righteous. We are not good. We are not right with God. As Peter says, we're wicked. We've slain the Messiah. Now, none of us here today were a part of that crowd that cried, crucify him, crucify him. So we might be thinking, compared to these people, I'm pretty good. Well, we could turn to many passages in God's word that would tell us just the opposite. That there is none righteous, No, not one. That all fall short of the glory of God. There's only one person, Jesus Christ, who's never sinned, who's never done anything wrong. But every one of us here has fallen short. We have done wrong. And we must depend on Jesus to be right with God. Just like those people, the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2. So these wicked Jews had put the Lord Jesus Christ to death. But Peter also made a strange remark, I don't know if you noticed it there in verse 23, that Jesus' death was according to the sovereign plan of God. Jesus died not just because some humans decided to kill him. Jesus died because he chose to die, to take the punishment that you and I deserve. We deserve to be on that cross, but Jesus died in our place. We might tend to think that we're good enough, that we don't need the Lord Jesus, but Peter would command us, if, you, if we think this way, as he commanded those Jews in Acts chapter 2, repent. Change your mind about that. Change your mind about who Jesus is and about how much you need him in your life. So most of this verse, verse 37, is spoken in the plural. Peter is addressing the group of Jewish people. But in the next few words... He switches from the plural to the singular. Look at verse 37, or excuse me, verse 38. And Peter said unto them, repent. He's speaking in the plural to the crowd. All of you, repent. But then he says, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. He switches from addressing the group to addressing every individual one of you. Every individual one of those who are listening to him here in Jerusalem. He zeroes in on the individual. So what is baptism? What is is Peter commanding his listeners to do? The word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo. And what does baptizo mean? It means to immerse, to plunge, to dip, to wash. It does not mean to sprinkle. There are some churches who believe in sprinkling, but that is not what the word baptizo means. But w- what exactly does baptism signify? What, what's its purpose? We dunk people. For what? Why? Why? Well, we can go really obvious here. Peter commanded it. That's why we do it. And Jesus also commanded it. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So clearly, both Jesus and Peter command baptism. So that's why we do it, right? That that is a very important reason why we do it. But is there a purpose? Is there a are we showing something by baptism? And the answer is yes. Um, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what is water baptism? It is a picture, an outward picture, of what Jesus has already done on the inside. It is a picture of the cleansing that he's already done on the inside. It's a picture of how we have, have been united with Christ in his death. That's the picture of going down, right? And we have been also united with him in his resurrection in that new life. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, as Paul speaking, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the inward reality. That the outward practice of baptism pictures. But we have another question here in verse 38. If this were the only verse in the Bible on baptism, you might think that baptism was a requirement for salvation. It sort of sounds like it, doesn't it? Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, or for the forgiveness of sins. So is Peter saying that in order to have your sins forgiven, you have to be baptized? There are churches that believe that. That is a practice, a doctrine, called baptismal regeneration. We do not believe that. But what is Peter saying? Well, before I get there, let me... Look quickly at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, where Peter, again the same, same apostle is speaking here, says, baptism doth also now save us. Oh, what did he just say? Baptism doth also now save us. But he's not done. He says, not, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. The Bible talks about baptism, specifically water baptism, but it also talks about baptism simply to refer to the cleansing that God gives us in Jesus Christ and to that uniting of us with Jesus in his death, and in his resurrection. Often we, ref- we differentiate between the two, calling one spirit baptism. We're baptized by the Spirit into Jesus. And we contrast that with water baptism, which is simply a picture of spirit baptism. So what is Peter doing here in, verse, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38? I think the reality that we cannot escape is though baptism is not a requirement for salvation, and, and we could even look at, you remember how I mentioned that one was plural and one was singular? That sort of offsets baptism, like repent, oh, and in parentheses also be baptized, it, it, it's almost that kind of a, a, a construction here. But what we can't get away from is how closely linked these two are. Salvation, or repentance, and baptism. To be very frank, in the New Testament church, in the early church, you simply did not have a class of people who had repented of their sins, who had trusted in Christ, and yet had not been baptized. If you trust in Christ, you are also baptized. It was like almost, almost automatic. This is assumed if you're going to trust in Christ, you're going to be baptized. And we're going to see that. We have 3,000 people who repent, 3,000 people who are baptized. We don't have 3,000 people who repent and only 1,000 of them who, who are baptized. It's almost an ima- automatic. If you are trusting in Christ, you are going to publicly identify outwardly what has happened on the inside that is what baptism is it is an identification of myself with Jesus it's saying I, Josiah Dennis am now a follower of Jesus Christ and I want everyone to know that I don't want to be a private, personal follower of Jesus. No. I'm confessing. I am making it known that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of baptism. So after Peter zeroes in on the individuals need to be baptized... He again zooms out to the group. And he says, he gives us the result of repenting. And again, in parentheses, closely related to it is baptism. Closely linked to it. But what is the result of repenting? It is the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And it is also the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yesterday at our men's prayer breakfast we discussed the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us, that Jesus gives us through the Holy Spirit. But those gifts, that's not what Peter's referring to here. When he refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit, he means the gift which is the Holy Spirit. This is the gift that we receive when we repent. We have the Holy Spirit come to live in us. The Apostle Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? This is one of the greatest blessings of being a follower of Jesus. We have the presence of God's Holy Spirit living in us. To convict us, to challenge us, yes, but also to produce his fruit in our lives, as the book of Galatians tells us, the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and you know the list there in Galatians chapter 5. That is the result of the Holy Spirit living in our lives. And how does he come to live in our lives? It is by repenting, changing our minds about who Jesus is and about our need for him. Embracing Jesus. But Peter continues, verse 39. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Peter says that this is a promise. What's the promise? Those who repent will receive forgiveness of their sins and the gift of of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of them. That's a promise. That's a promise. We can be sure that if we change our minds, if we repent, that we will, that our sins will be forgiven, and that the Holy Spirit will come to live in us. He says, for the promise is unto you, to your children, and to all that are afar off. Now, if you were reading this passage and you thought, this is just history, well, I think we might be able to, to fit in that phrase to all that are afar off. I don't know if P- who exactly Peter was referring to here, but the idea is this is open to anyone, whether it's you who's listening to me right now People of future generations, your children, or anyone, anywhere. This is for all. He uses that word all, all that are afar off. Jesus Christ died for all people. And he gives a genuine offer of forgiveness to all people. But not all, excuse me, not all receive that offer. And I pray that there's no one here today who is rejecting this offer that the Lord has given. And I pray that there's no one who's watching this right now or later who is rejecting that offer that the Lord has offered to us. It's for you. It's for me. But will we take his offer of forgiveness? I think most of us here today have taken his offer. But Peter then says that this promise is for as many as the Lord our God shall call. So after he just said that it's for all people, now he seems to almost be taking a step back, putting a restriction on it, and it's like, well, but it's only for the people whom the Lord calls. But you know, this fits with what we see elsewhere in Scripture. That God does, in my opinion, God does genuinely choose who will be saved. He genuinely chooses. And yet, all people have a genuine offer to trust in Christ. And you say, that sounds contradictory. How can God choose if I have a choice? I don't know. But I know that God is sovereign, and that God works in ways that we do not understand. And it seems to me that God's word teaches both. That he, that he chooses us, he chooses who he calls to salvation, and yet all people, all people, have a genuine offer to trust in Christ. God works in ways that we cannot understand, but we recognize that he is offering forgiveness to us, to any one of us and to all of us. But we have, we don't have an opportunity any opportunity to boast about our part in receiving that forgiveness it is from god for us and the question is this will we be humble enough to change our minds and embrace the one who died for us in verse 40 peter gives the final appeal with many other words did he testify and exhort saying save yourselves from this untoward generation. The word save yourself, or save yourselves, could also be translated as be saved. The focus here isn't on, oh, you have the power in yourself to save yourself. No, it is that you need to allow someone else to rescue you, to deliver you, to save you. That word untoward simply means Crooked, perverse. And is that not the age in which we live? A crooked generation. So this is Peter's appeal. He appeals to people based on the message of Jesus to turn to him. He speaks to the Jews You've heard the message of Jesus. You can turn to him. And how did they respond? We see the answer in verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people responded with a change of mind and a change of heart. This is what scripture means when it says that they gladly received Peter's message. They changed their minds. They had been thinking one way, but they changed their minds. They gladly received the message that Peter was preaching. And these people, these same people, these same 3,000 people, also followed his second command to be baptized. So this morning... I want to encourage you that the message of Jesus is able not to ca- just to cause these Jewish people in the first century AD to be able to turn to Jesus, but it is able to cause you to turn to him. Just as these 3,000 souls turn to Jesus, you also can turn to him. You can embrace his death in your place. And closely connected to that change of mind is a picture called water baptism. You can join the ranks of those who publicly identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this leads us to the second way. And yes, we will move faster through these last two. The second way in which the message of Jesus is able to change us. The message of Jesus is able to cause you to join others in following him. This joining together with other believers begins with repentance, begins with baptism, but it doesn't end there. Notice in verse 41 that these 3,000 people were added to a group. We'll read verse 41 again. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What is this group? They're added to something, right? What is this group that they are added to? It's what we would call the local church. What is a local church? Very simply, as defined by scripture, a local church is a group of believers in a particular area who gather together to do what God has commanded us to do. So let's pause here for just a minute. When Luke, who's writing in the book of Acts, records that the people in this first church in Jerusalem were added to the church. Is this some type of church membership? I think that is a relevant question here, because if the Bible talks about church membership, this would be one of the places that it would talk about it. Here's my thinking. It may not have been church membership quite as we understand church membership. But it does seem evident from this passage and from others in the New Testament that there was a clear indication of these people are in the group, And these people are not in the group. And that is really the point of church membership. Who is a part of the church and who is not a part of the church? This is why Paul could instruct the church in Corinth, in the book of 1 Corinthians, to put a certain man who, who had sinned, who had had illicit relations with his stepmother, to put her out of the church. Well, there's got to be a defining mark of who's in the church if you're going to be able to put someone out of the church. So this is why we have church membership. We know the certain things about the people in the group. We know that they have given us testimony, that they have trusted in Christ, that they have repented, that they have been baptized by immersion. But we also know that that group is the ones who we are responsible for. Those of us who are in the group are responsible to the others in the group to encourage each other, to help provide for each other's needs, as we're going to see as we continue on here in Acts chapter 2, and also to keep each other accountable, which is, again, to reference 1 Corinthians if there is someone who is sinning, who is in active rebellion against the Lord, then we need to be able to say, I'm actually accountable for that person. They are a part of our church, and there has to be a way to remove them. If they're not a part of the group, we can't do anything. There's no way of saying, you're no longer a part of the group because you never were a part of the group. So, that is... Why we have church membership is to keep each other accountable, to keep each other encouraged. And these are the people into whom we invest our lives, as we're going to see in these next few verses. So we see in verse 41 that 3,000 people repented, were baptized, and were added to the church. But what next? We see in verse 42 what it is that this new church in Jerusalem did when it gathered together. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. We see here, he says that they continued steadfastly, that there was this faithfulness about continuing in this gathering together. And what did they gather together to do? To hear the apostles teach. To fellowship. To break bread. Very likely that is a reference to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And then prayer. These were their priorities as a local church. Now, I want to take a step back for just a second and say, again, Luke is recording history. How do we know those were the priorities for this church? How do we know that they're the priorities for Calvary Baptist Church? Or that they should be the priorities for Calvary Baptist Church? I would say this. If the only place that these activities were mentioned was in the book of Acts, then we would have good reason to say, maybe not. Maybe that was just for them. But if we see it mentioned in other places, for example, Paul commands Timothy, preach the word. Well, what is that? That is the teaching of the apostles. It's broader than the teaching of the apostles, but it includes the teaching of the apostles. And we could do the same for each of these others, for fellowship, for remembering the Lord's death. Certainly, we we have the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth about how to remember the Lord's death. And in prayers, again, throughout Scripture, we have repeated commands. I think we read one of them this morning in the corporate reading of God's Word where Paul commands the church in Philippi, pray for us. So these are not just priorities for the church in Jerusalem, but they should be our priorities as well. So then the question we have to ask ourselves is, are they? Are they the priorities of our church? Are they the priorities in my life? Is it a priority to me that the word of God be preached? Is it a priority to me that a future pastor of this church be faithful in expounding the word of God? It should be, and I think it is for most of us here this morning. And we could say, again, the same about fellowship, about breaking bread, about prayer. If I were completely honest... And we could, probably a lot of churches could say this. I would say that the one that we need to do the most work on is probably prayer. Especially corporate prayer, which seems to be the reference here. It's people in the church getting together to pray. These are things that should be a priority in our, in our lives and in our church. We come then to verse 43. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. That word fear could also be understood as awe. People were standing in awe of this massive group of 3,000 people. I think we would be standing in awe too if 3,000 people in Hollister suddenly heard a powerful sermon, and trusted in Christ. I think we would be standing in awe too as we saw this radical transformation taking place. They had been, again, those ones who had been crying, crucify him, crucify him. And now they're faithfully gathering together with followers of that same man who they cried crucify. What a transformation, what a reason to stand in awe, to respond in this fear. We also see that the apostles were doing many wonders and signs. Now, I believe, as the church here believes, uh, that these wonders and signs were a part of the apostolic period, the early years of the New Testament church. So they're not something that we necessarily expect to see today. We don't have apostles today, so we don't necessarily see these same wonders and signs. But here's a question for us. Is God still able to do great things through Calvary Baptist Church? If the Lord wanted to, could he use us to see Three thousand people come to trust in Christ in Hollister. He could. I would be surprised, but he could. I, I would. I'd be content with thirty. Uh, but certainly he could. And do we? Do we beg him for that? Do we? Coming back to the topic of prayer, do we seek that? Do, and are we doing our part to tell others about? the message of Jesus. May we not lose sight of the power of our God to change lives. The message of Jesus is able to cause you to join others in following him. We come then to our third and final way in which the message of Jesus has the power to change us. And that is that the message of Jesus is able to cause you to share your life with others. This is where that radical transformation comes in, where once we were self-centered, self-focused, and now because these people around me are also followers of Jesus, I love them, and I want to do what's good for them, not because I'm focused on them specifically, but because I'm focused on serving Jesus. Verse 44, Luke records that all who believed were together and shared all things in common. Let's read it together. And all that believed were together and had all things common. Notice that word all in there twice. All that believed had all things common. This was the entire body of believers Sharing everything. Coming back to our topic of socialism, isn't it? But this was a willing sharing of your life with others. We can keep reading verse 45 what this looks like. Verse 45, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. So those who had resources sold them and gave them to those who were penniless, who had no resources. These believers were so committed to the cause of Jesus Christ that they were willing to give up everything they owned in the furtherance of that cause because of their love for the Lord Jesus are we like them, that willing to share what we have with one another? Or again, do we pull back and say, no, 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 that's my stuff. That's my time. That's my life. You can't have it. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't set boundaries. I, you can go to the opposite extreme where you don't take care of yourself because you're so involved in other people's lives. But I don't think most of us have that problem. Um, This is what the early church did. They had all things in common. Now, again, I am not advocating this Christian socialism in the local church. Because what I said earlier, how do we find what is commanded for us? This is The book of Acts is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It doesn't tell us what to do. It just tells us how the early church did it. And that's one thing. When we look through the rest of the New Testament, we don't see a command to sell everything you have and give all of it to those in the church. But we do see commands about the need, for example, in the book of James, command to help the widows and the orphans. So certainly there is this concept that we need to be generous, that we need to be sharing. Perhaps not to the extreme of this first church in Jerusalem, but certainly following their example in the willingness to share our lives with others. Paul also instructs Timothy about how to care for widows in the church. And this, this, is the, this is the local church's responsibility. Which means, if it's the local church's responsibility, and who's the local church? A group of people, right? So if it's the local church's responsibility, that means it's my responsibility. That means it's your responsibility. Um, we weren't specifically talking about this topic yesterday, but at the men's breakfast, we did talk about this, that if we want the church to grow, the answer is not simply to look at the church as a whole. The answer is, are each of us individually doing what we can? Are we all in? Are we committed to building each other up, to sharing with one another, to, to following the Lord wholeheartedly with our lives? So then we come to verse 46. We see another detail Luke hadn't given us back in verse 42. Read verse 46 with me. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Back in verse 42, Luke had said that they continued steadfastly, that they were devoted, that they were faithful in doing these activities, in gathering together. But here in verse 46, he tells us how often that is. That it was on a daily basis. Some of us complain about having to go to church every Sunday. These people were so transformed by the message of Jesus that they were willing every day to meet together in the temple this is most likely a larger gathering, and then breaking bread from house to house, these would be most likely smaller gatherings because unless, I don't know, I've never been in a house that could fit 3,000 people. Been in some large houses, but not that big. So, they were faithful in daily gathering together. And it says that they had gladness. That's that joy we talked about earlier. And singleness or unity of heart. And then we come to verse 47, final verse here in Acts chapter 2. We see their response, the response of the people around them, their response, praising God, response of the people around them, having favor with all the people. And then we see that final sentence, that it wasn't just 3,000 people. That was just the beginning. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So this was continuing. More and more people joining the church, becoming involved and in faithfully sharing their lives with each other. So we've seen from these 11 verses how powerful the message Of Jesus is. It's able to cause us, first of all, to turn to Jesus. But then it's able to cause us to join others in following Him. And finally, the message of Jesus is able to cause us to share our lives with others. So may each of us here today allow the Word of God to impact our lives and may we respond in obedience to what he commands. If your need this morning is to turn to Jesus, would you do that? Would you embrace his death on the cross as being in your place? Would you trust him for the forgiveness that he has promised to all who turn to him? Perhaps you've already trusted in Jesus' death in your place. Again, that's the majority of us here this morning. But you need to take the next step, that step that's closely linked with repentance, which is baptism. Publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus, one who's been united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Perhaps you'd like to join in church membership. We invite you to do so. Perhaps you have been convicted of your need to be faithful in prayer. Or perhaps your need to be faithful more faithful in gathering together with God's people. Whatever your need is this morning, I encourage you to respond. May we not be forgetful hearers of the word, and may we go from here reminded that the message of Jesus has the power to change us completely. Would you bow your heads with me let us pray.